the dialectical imagination is about rupture, brokenness, distance, gaps, chasms. That's the wasteland kind of part and parcel, right? And then in Four Quartets, Eliot is interested in, and explicitly says, right, these are, you know, hints and guesses and the, the gift half understood is incarnation, right? He's interested in how those moments, you know, the moment in the rose garden, the, those moments of where, the, 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 uh, where time seems to open up to eternity aren't just fun, lovely, beautiful moments, right? They tell us something really important about the essential nature of existence, which is there is a deep relationship, a sustaining relationship between the imminent and the transcendent. Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm a philosopher at the University of South Carolina, and I'm a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. As always, I'd like to thank my sponsors for their support of this podcast. First and foremost, the Institute for Human Ecology, which underwrites this podcast. The IHE is an academic institute committed to research into the conditions vital for human flourishing. To learn more about the IHE and all of the events and programs they put on, you can go to their website, ihe.catholic.edu. And I'd also like to thank The Lamp and The Point magazines for underwriting my Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to sign up to be a monthly patron. As a $10 monthly patron, for example, you can get a free digital subscription to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. The Lamp is a bi-monthly lay-edited journal of Catholic letters. To read some of their content, please go to thelampmagazine.com. And The Point is a magazine of philosophical writing. You can check out the fall issue at thepointmag.com. I am pleased to get to episode 58 of the podcast, in which I chat with Tony Domestico, a critic and professor of literature at Purchase College, about the poetry of T.S. Eliot. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am recording from Ohio, where it's really snowy, and it's finally somewhat quiet because my kids are gone for a few hours. And so I'm really excited to be podcasting and get a break from playing Family Bingo, which I've played like maybe 200 times right now, and I'm close to losing my mind. So today I'm really excited to be joined by Anthony Domestico. Anthony is an associate professor of literature at Purchase College, and he's also the books columnist for Commonweal. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me. I think the place to start is, is not with the poetry, but with the man. And just kind of, obviously, there's a lot that you could say there, but I'm sort of interested in, you know, the, the basic narrative arc of his life. Yeah. And at least, at least up until the time that he writes The Four Quartets. Yeah. So let's hear about Eliot. Yeah. So Eliot was born into a, a Boston Brahmin family. 
uh, although he was not born in New England, he was born in St. Louis. And St. Louis, in, in many ways, in the Mississippi River specifically, are really important to all of his poetry, but especially to the Dry Salvages, one of the, the four quartets. I, I So I'm Midwestern, and yeah. I think of him as a Midwesterner. This is correct, right? He's Midwestern. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's he's strange, right? Because he's absolutely Midwestern in, in many ways. He's absolutely and deeply New England in many ways, right? He, you know, would go for summers, you know, the Dry Salvages refers to the place where he would summer with his family, you know, off the coast of St. Anne. But he's also, of course, you know, he moves to England, right, in the 19-teens, and he's quite keen on becoming English, right? So he's this strange amalgamation of Midwestern roots, deep New England heritage, and borrowed or imitated Anglicanism, right? And and one of the great things when whenever I teach The Wasteland, I always have my students first listen to it. And that's something I, I want to maybe talk about together in talking about The Wasteland and also talking about Four Quartets, how... So you you started off by saying, right, that you've loved Eliot, but you've never quite gotten him, right? And he has a, I think it's in an essay on Dante. He says that genuine poetry can uh, communicate before it is understood, right? Yeah. Part of the way it communicates, of course, is in his music. He's one of the great, he has one of the great poetic ears in the English tradition. But whenever I teach The Wasteland, I have my students listen to him reading The Wasteland and ask them, what do you make of his accent, right? Because it really is like a Midwesterner, right? Speaking kind of with New England Tony undertones, trying on an English accent at the same time. It's this really yeah. strange um, kind of hybrid. Yeah, but it's great. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, first of all, it's classically Midwestern. Yeah. Is to be deeply uncomfortable with being Midwestern. Yeah. <laughs> And like just desperately trying to like take on another culture. I mean, yeah. I can say this of myself as well. Uh-huh. But I actually listened to Alec Alec Guinness read The Wasteland. Uh-huh. Just for the kitsch of it. And also it yeah. was great. Yeah. Also on YouTube, guys. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So he's Well, in and, and I and I think that those those multiple selves and those multiple voices in particular, right, are so central to what we think of as Eliot the poet, right? That one of the the features, not just of the wasteland, of four quartets as well, but but especially and dramatically of the wasteland is its many voices, right? It's many accents, it's many registers. Famously, the poem was initially going to be called He Do the Police in Different Voices. Kind of glad they changed that. Definitely. I mean, Pound, <laughs> Pound, great, great editor. Um, and one of the great decisions was to not have it be he do the police in different voices. Yeah. Just doesn't land the same. I no, know. it certainly does not. But so, so yeah, he's he's born in, in St. Louis. He spends his childhood in St. Louis. He's a pretty sickly child, spends a lot of time inside uh, reading. And he's raised in... And I think this will be important for our later conversation. He's raised in a, like a soft Unitarian family, right? And this is something that he'll react against really throughout his entire career. What's but, a so soft Unitarian? What's a hard <laughs> Unitarian? Just so that I can understand the soft one by contrast. Yeah. So in in his own reflections, right, he he talks about how... The family didn't particularly care about doctrine or dogma. 
that it was more interested in, you know, what he describes critically as something like religious romanticism, right? Religious feeling as yeah. opposed to, yeah. That just sounds Unitarian though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, that's their, that's their yeah. thing. So I, I, I guess what I'm probably doing is maybe unconsciously taking on Eliot's own biases, right? That when he's mm -hmm. talking about religion, when he wants to criticize something, he oftentimes describes it as soft, you know, yeah. romantic, feeling-based. Yeah. And when he wants to praise something, he talks about its rigor, its discipline. Right. But so, yeah, so he's he's raised in St. Louis and, and his father actually is, is a businessman. He is the, the proprietor of a, a brick and hydraulic company. Elliot ends up going to Harvard as an undergrad. You, of course, will know and be interested that he trained to initially be a philosopher, right? He was writing a dissertation, finished a dissertation on F.H. Bradley. and. When he's at Harvard as an undergrad, he really has been writing some kind of poetry, not really Eliot-like poetry, not what we would describe as Eliot-like poetry throughout his, his early years. But when he's at Harvard, he discovers the, the French poet Jules Laforgue, who is a really important poet for him in discovering his own voice. And this is something that I think is, is crucial to Eliot's sense of tradition, his sense of poetry, that Eliot came to find his own voice in part by kind of borrowing and using the voice of another poet, Laforgue, who was mm. deeply ironic, deeply sardonic, wrote about modernity and wrote about unpoetic subjects that this connects actually to another really important poet for for Eliot, who I, I know you've spoken with Dana Joy about, um, Baudelaire, right? Um, kind of finding poetry in the, the sordid and the unpoetic. So when he's at Harvard, he starts writing poetry, something that looks more like Eliot's poetry. In fact, he, he starts writing proofrock when he's an undergrad. But he he decides that he thinks he wants to be a philosopher. He is working mm -hmm. on a dissertation. He goes to Europe. And when he's in Europe, World War I intervenes, he decides that he's not going to come back to the United States. He's not going to be a philosopher, right? He's going to, he's going to be a poet. Mm -hmm. And Sorry, but was he studying philosophy in, in the UK or... Yes. So he, so he was... In, who, who was he? Was he at Oxford? Was he at Cambridge? Who was he studying with? So he um, is a student at Harvard still, right? He's in the PhD program there. And he's taking kind of classes. He's he is there in the the early nineteen teens. So he's um, kind of amidst the the vogue for Bergson, right? Um, a lot of French philosophy is is being talked about. And he so he ends up though kind of deciding not to to become a, a philosopher to stay in in England and to clinch this decision to basically you know, clinch the, the, the decision not to return to the U.S. and become an academic, he marries a woman named Vivian. And it is a famously terrible marriage, um, really from the start. Mm -hmm. And she's... And was she, was she like aristocratic? What was her deal? So she's not, not aristocratic. And that's par part of what his what so offended his his family besides his mother wanted him to be a philosopher they wanted him oh to really 
Yeah. That's uncommon. Yeah. Well, they, well, they wanted, I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll love this, right? They wanted him to have the kind of stable professional life of the philosopher, right? That, that's, mm, a, that's, a, that's, yeah. a, that's a stable professional life, right? As opposed to the life of a poet. But so Vivian is not of, of a particularly high class. She's interested in the arts. Um, she ends up writing little vignettes for the Criterion when Elliot ends up kind of editing that magazine. But she's really a, a bit of a, a mess. She is a hypochondriac. She also had serious health issues, but she's a hypochondriac. Shortly after they get married, she has an affair with Bertrand Russell, um, and it's just a pretty nightmarish marriage from start to finish. And it is in part out of the emotional and it seems sexual dysfunction and neuroticism of this marriage, partly out of the, the dysfunction and neuroticism of the marriage that the wasteland, um, emerges, right? That the wasteland has how, often how many years from the marriage to the publication because the wasteland's in 1922 correct 1922 yeah they're married in 1915 okay and yeah so you know there are there are horrible letters that Elliot writes both during and especially kind of after the marriage in which he talks about how he's had to turn himself into a machine, right? Basically had to shut down all human feeling in order to continue living in this kind of toxic marriage. Mm -hmm. And certainly the wasteland emerges out of all kinds of things, deep poetic tradition, Eliot's really careful thinking about European culture and history, but it also clearly emerges out of this long-standing kind of traumatic relationship that he had with Vivian. So in 1922, he's not yet a Christian, correct? Correct. Yeah. So why not just, why not just divorce his wife? Cause I know later he's, he has religious convictions, you know, it's against canon law, but yeah. at this point, if it's so terrible and he's a pagan, why not? Yeah. I mean, I think partly, even though Elliot had not, converted by 1922. I mean, I think one one disservice that we've oftentimes done to Eliot is to think that there's an absolute gap separating the early Eliot from the later Eliot. And I think that, you know, he was raised in a Christian family and he was interested in mysticism, for instance, when he was a, a, an undergrad at Harvard, right? He's a kind of complicatedly, I think, still religious poet and religious thinker, even before he converts. So maybe it's the, the lingering after effects, right, of a Christian upbringing that causes him or, or, or um, leads him to not divorce Vivian. I think maybe the more interesting thing we might say, right, is that the marriage was terrible for his life and really good for his poetry, right? Mm, yeah, all that suffering. Yeah, it was precisely out of that kind of cauldron of neuroses and, and sniping and recrimination that the great poetry of the, the late teens and early 20s emerged. Do you think he was self-consciously aware of that connection and was sort of like wanting to hold on to it somehow? Or this is just a third personal description of what was actually the case? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because in... 
his probably his most important piece of criticism, which he wrote, you know, when he was working on the wasteland tradition and the individual talent, Eliot talks about how poetry is not an expression of personality, right? It's an escape from personality, right? In tradition, the individual talent, he talks about poetry as being a kind of disciplining of the self that leads to almost an extinction of the self in, in the poem. And so he would, I think, at least when he was writing that essay and for, for long stretches of his life, would have been quite resistant to the idea that he is living in a, in a certain way so as to create a certain kind of poetry, right? Because poetry is precisely an escape in certain ways from personality, from selfhood for him. So I don't know that, especially when he was working on The Wasteland, I don't know that he would have said, I mean, I, I think he almost certainly wouldn't have said, I'm staying in this bad marriage because it's creating <laughs> great poetry, right? Mm. <laughs> I think it's hard not to think that was at least somewhat at play. Mm-hmm. In part because the really powerful and decidedly new poetry that was emerging at that time so clearly seems to emerge from the kind of pressure cooker that was that marriage. Well, another possible explanation is that he just was socially conservative. But was he socially conservative? I know later on in his life he's socially conservative, but I wasn't sure if that was a consistent. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's he's a great satirist of the overly mannered, especially the overly mannered kind of New England society that he was very familiar with. Uh Some of his early poems. He has a, a great early poem, uh, The Portrait of a Lady. He, you know, in uh, Proof Rock, right? Uh, women come and go speaking or talking of Michelangelo, right? There, he's, he's very attuned to the, the artifice and manneredness of convention and of social existence. So he's able to train a satirical eye on it, and he also absolutely abides by it, right? So I think I think you're absolutely right to say that he probably didn't get divorced in in part simply because that's not what was done, right? You know, and and he was both withering and completely complicit in in kind of social convention. Right. It's kind of like you don't want to formalize a failure. You don't yes. you don't want to formally recognize a failure. Especially when when this was such a dr- in in he he understands it in in Ezra Pound in in letters actually to to Ellie, Ezra Pound at at the time of the marriage right in 1915 when Elliot has basically decided I'm not going to be go home and be a philosopher I'm going to marry and be a poet mm-hmm. Pound kind of writes to Elliot's parents and and cast this marriage in precisely those dramatic terms, right? That he, this marriage is an act, right? This is an act that is choosing the life of the artist, the life of the poet, the life of kind of bohemianism against the stuffy life of the academic. And Mm -hmm. to kind of renege on that act, I think you're right, would be not just to admit failure, but to admit failure of a decision that was made not just in a partner, but seemed to be made for a certain kind of life. Right. Yeah. So was he hanging out with like the Bloomsbury crowd? Like So he's yeah, he's from a from a pretty early stage, he's friendly with Wolf in particular. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Virgin, one of the the great delights, the Robert Crawford just published the second volume in his two volume biography of T.S. Eliot. And the second volume is called Eliot After the Wasteland. And mm-hmm. one of the great delights. Yeah, I think I read your review in The Baffler. Yeah, yeah. So one of the, the and I, I talk about this in that piece, one of the great delights of the that biography is Crawford quoting from Wolf's diaries. Mm-hmm. After she hangs out with Elliot, right? That, that you know, she she has wonderful and kind of ca- oftentimes kind of catty things to say about Elliot after they hang out. So they're friends, but they also were like to gossip with and about one another. So Elliot was absolutely, you know, enmeshed in literary culture, English literary culture in the ni- late 19 teens and then early 1920s. He was working at Lloyd's Bank, right? He was a banker when he mm-hmm. wrote The Wasteland. But he was, you know, friends with Ezra Pound. He was friends with Virginia Woolf. Obviously, Bertrand Russell, Russell. was in the mix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, in the next it's a nice way of putting yeah, it. Yeah. 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 So like at what point then? So he so he's he's a banker, he's writing poetry in his spare time. He's unhappily married. He's yeah. not a Christian. Yeah. What he's hanging, I mean, he's working very, very closely with Ezra Pound because like the wasteland is oddly I mean, it's almost like an Elliot Pound collaboration because Absolutely. Yeah. Pound like, I mean, the editing is so intense. Yeah. So he's hanging around with that crowd, which I don't think of as an especially Christian crowd. So what what yeah. what happens there? Yeah. So um Barry Spur has a really good book called, I think it's called Anglo Catholic in Religion. Came out maybe 10 or 12 years ago that talks about Eliot's movement towards Anglo Catholicism, his conversion in 1927. And I think that Spur makes the compelling case that, well, kind of what I was saying before, that Eliot was interested in religion broadly conceived, but Christianity specifically for a long time before he converted. That mm-hmm. he was reading the mystics. He was, you know, when he's editing the Criterion, so the Criterion is a little magazine that the first issue in 1922 publishes the publishes the Wasteland in its entirety. So he's editing the Criterion throughout the 1920s, and increasingly, is the Wasteland self published? Then I didn't realize this. So it's it's published <laughs> in America as well in the Dial. Okay. Okay. It's published in England in uh, the Criterion. So I'm going to suggest that your readers seek out another um, great piece that was published in the last few weeks, which is an essay by Ryan Ruby. R-E-Z. Yeah, I read that too. Yeah. yeah. And and so- Dig the, it up again. Yeah. At uh, the Poetry Foundation website, I think. Yeah. yeah. I'll definitely post that in the show notes. It's it's yeah. really good. And so he talks there, and it's it's a, gr- it's a great essay for, for many reasons. He kind of starts off by saying that there's- this misconception of Eliot that has grown up of him as the kind of high priest of high culture, right? And uninterested in low demotic art forms. He says, that's totally not true. Eliot loved, mm-hmm. you know, Charlie Chaplin and Groucho mm-hmm. Marx. And, and mm-hmm. actually he was, his plays in particular, but his essays as well were quite popular when they were published. But anyway, there was actually conversation about first publishing The Wasteland in Vanity Fair, 
mm. in the United States, mm. which which is an interesting comment on on literary culture in the time, right? That Vanity Fair would would think about publishing it. But so mm-hmm. it's published in England in the Criterion, a kind of self publication, and in the United States in in the Dial. But when he's editing the Criterion, Elliot is soliciting book reviews, right? And he has a roster of reviewers who are writing essays and and uh, kind of longer pieces. And increasingly throughout the 1920s, he's getting people to review theology, religious writing of various kinds. And in the 1920s, he in particular starts reading a lot of uh, Jacques Maritain, right? He writes on Maritain for the TLS and for the Criterion as well. He gets really interested in debates about neo-Thomism and partly his movement towards conversion in 1927. You know, there there was a longstanding, I think, inaccurate account of Eliot's conversion that, you know, the wasteland, proof rock, these early poems show a man who is kind of psychically and spiritually broken, right? That it's poem, they're poems of fragments. And he's desperately seeking some coherence, some order, not just to his poetry, but to his life. And Mm -hmm. that's why he converts, right, in 1927. Christianity gives him some way of making the the fractured self cohere. And that's to a certain extent right. But I think it was a much more longstanding and patient journey towards Christianity. And it was one that involved... Um, not just kind of emotional or psychological ascent, but also a, a deeply intellectual component, right? That he was reading Marathon, he was thinking about Thomism, and he was interested not just in the, the kind of ritual and liturgy of Christianity, although he absolutely was deeply moved by the liturgy, but he also was moving there in, in part because he found the religious, the Christian framework convincing, right? So he's reading uh, Maritain and maybe Gilson and these guys. Is he actually reading St. Thomas? Do we know? So he he claims he, it, there's, a, again, a, a, a nice indication of what a different kind of cultural landscape the Criterion was published in. There's this point in the, I think it was 1928, when uh, Eliot needed to drum up interest in the Criterion. The sales had kind of been lagging. And the way that he tried to to drum up interest was by stoking a controversy with his kind of friend, the the critic J. Middleton Murray, over neo-Thomism, right? Mm. So they have like an argument about what Thomism means, what reason means within the Thomistic system. And in Eliot's intervention in that conversation, he kind of poo-poos his own reading of Thomas, right? He says, I don't know Aquinas all that well. He knew. I mean, it's a safe comment for most of us. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, he he knows uh, he knew Aquinas as well as any non-theologian of the time would have known Aquinas, right? Yeah, he knew gotcha. Aquinas pretty well. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So then he becomes Anglo-Catholic. Do you think that Anglo and Anglo-Catholic is just part and parcel of the Anglophilia that he clearly has, or? Is it something deeper? Like, is he just against, you know, the Pope? Yeah, I, th- I think it's primarily the the Anglophilia, right? That yeah. he's he's really he's really committed to well the liturgy and the history and the culture out of which the church that he started attending emerged. 
mm-hmm. in in London. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he would. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and I feel. Oh, no, sorry. I, I, I feel like today, you know, people who would have become Anglo-Catholic in like the 1920s yeah. and 1930s just because just become Catholic because there's no longer the connection really. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing but a but a very tenuous connection now between yeah. the Anglican Church and British culture. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously there. I mean, the queen just died. We we all saw what Yeah. <laughs> What crown and altar united really look like, but I yeah. mean, but it's it was far more substantive then, right? And, right. And that, and that connection meant a lot for Elliot, for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he becomes so he publishes the Wasteland. He becomes super famous. Yeah. And or is that does the is the fame immediate upon publication? So um, Elliot has. There's an interesting letter. Around the time of the wasteland, I think it was a little bit before, where he was talking about how to become an important poet, really, you have one of two tactics. And, and Eliot was a very brilliant kind of literary tactician. He knew how to get his name out there. He used his criticism, including tradition in the individual talent, but other essays on the metaphysical poets and others. He used his criticism to kind of teach his readers how to read his own poetry, right? So he's, he's very aware of the literary landscape and how he fits within it and how he may, might give himself a more prominent space within it. And he has this great letter where he says, basically, as a poet, you have one of two tactics. Either you can flood the market with your poetry, right? You'll really get your name out there by always publishing poetry, or you can get your name out there by being very, very, very careful about what you publish, right? C publishing very sparingly so each book or each poem even becomes an event, right? Mm. And The Wasteland really was an event when, when it was published, in part because it was, uh, you know, in the first issue of The Criterion, which was publishing the, the most important literary figures of the time, in part because there was already a kind of critical apparatus surrounding the wasteland, thinking about it as the expre the poetic expression of the moment. And also just, again, because Eliot was quite good. And, and I, I love the, the wasteland, right? And, and I think it, it became, in many ways, the most important poem of Anglophone modernism because of its brilliance, because of its power. But it also became the most important poem of Anglophone modernism in part because Eliot helped to make it so, right, by his friendships, by his writing. Yeah, wasn't it really Pound who was his major hype man? Absolutely. So Pound is, you know, the great hype man of modernism, and mm -hmm. he didn't just edit The Wasteland. I mean, the editing, again, like you were saying, is is selling it short, right? He was yeah. really the creator of yeah. the wasteland, but he immediate, immediately declared to anyone who would listen that this is the justification of our movement, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we have been working towards. And Pound, you know, I said that, that Eliot was a great literary tactician. I don't know that I want to say Pound was a great tactician because he was he could, he could be quite, uh, you know, offensive in many of his proclamations, but he certainly knew how to get poems and poets talked about, right? And mm -hmm. he wanted to get The Wasteland and Eliot talked about, and he certainly did. Yeah. 
Maybe we can just stop here very briefly to talk yeah. about the wasteland bef yeah. before we move on. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just going to say it and and I can horrify everyone, but I don't love this poem. Mm. I recognize that it's very important. I recognize that it's extremely clever. I appreciate, you know, the, what it's doing in some sense, but like I read it and I just feel kind of confused. Mm. And and I don't I mean, you can you can listen to it. I mean, I have listened to it read and it, I mean, yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't move me mm. really. And I think that's mm -hmm. just because I don't understand its meaning mm. <laughs> and, and reading a lot of criticism of it is helpful, but it doesn't, it doesn't somehow really change the experience for me. So maybe this is just a horrible blind spot on my part. But there's also this really interesting claim that Eliot himself makes in this essay and uh, that he wrote in 1921. What, what essay is this? Uh, you would know. It's an essay that he wrote right before The Wasteland comes out, but he says the poet's and our civilization as it, as it exists in the present must be difficult. Yeah. But then in the very same essay, he says, the poet, must, the poet must become more comprehensive, elusive, indirect, in order to force, to dislocate, if necessary, language into its meaning. I don't, I, I'm just gonna, I don't know what that means. Like, mm -hmm. because again, when I read The Wasteland, well, I, I don't feel like I've reached some, yeah, some deeper meaning. I mean, I feel like I've read something enormously clever, mm -hmm. and once you track down all the references, you're like, yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, it doesn't leave me with anything more than just an appreciation for someone's talent and cleverness. Mm -hmm. And 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 in a later essay, I can't remember which one. I'm sorry because my notes are a, are an absolute mess. He talks about how understanding and enjoyment and poetry are two sides of the same coin. So mm. if you – he's like, you don't really enjoy a poet, a poem unless you understand mm. it, and you don't mm -hmm. really understand it if you don't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So applying that claim to the wasteland for me, I'm like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know? yeah. I neither really enjoy it nor understand it. So mm -hmm. please help me. You are here. So please help me and my listeners who yeah. may be similarly defective in yeah. the ways that I clearly am. Because I love Elliot. Yeah. But The Wasteland, I'm always just a bit baffled, to be honest. So when you say you love Elliot, what Elliot do you love? You love Elliot of, of Four Quartets? Yeah. I mean, basically, if you just look at, you know, any collected poems. Yeah. I pretty much am moved by all of it except the wasteland. Except the wasteland. Where yeah. I'm like, huh, yeah, yeah that happened. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like, and it's funny because that's the one that like I'm supposed to love. And I'm like, mm. it just leaves me a little bit cold. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. Yeah. Because I'm not crazy. Yeah. But, but it just doesn't move me. So please help me. Yeah. I mean, I think that. I mean, the first thing I should say is I also prefer four quartets and it's so wonderful. It's yeah. like, it's so wonderful. Yeah. E even though I think that, 
and you you said a few times something like it leaves me cold, right? The wasteland, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that the the wasteland, I think, is de- to me deeply, deeply moving in moments, right? There are images and passages and lines that I think distill and articulate something perfectly about longing for connection, about kind of spiritual yearning, about yearning for precisely that order that I was talking about, Elliot. I mean, it's Elliot. So there are always like amazing images and great lines where you're like, that's a great line, you know? I mean, and you, but if you, but it's so weird because it's like, you know, you feel like it's like if you, if you just go to the beginning of the poem, the burial of the dead. Like it starts yeah. out, and you're like, "Wow, this is great!" And then all of a sudden, it's just like some random German, and then he's like, "Oh, I was I was sledding and staying yeah. at the Archduke's," and you're like, "What's happening? I don't know what's happening anymore." And 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 you just I feel that way the whole time. Yeah, where it's like I think you think it's going one way, and it's going another way, and I realize that that's all very intentional. You know yeah. that the whatever the historical fracture of the moment demanded formal fracture in the poem. Yeah. But it's just very hard for me to, I don't know, maybe I'm just a person who longs for unity and cohesion and he's just not going to give it to me. And so I'm just going to be upset. Yeah. No. And, and, and it's, it's funny, right? Because you're, you're right. You're talking about the opening of the burial of the dead and April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. And a it's beautiful, lyrical opening steeped in, you know, the prosody and tradition of English poetry, telling us something really important about the painfulness of rebirth, right? And then you're right, it it, sw- it shifts pretty rapidly into if you don't have the notes or even if you do have the notes, what seem to be kind of indecipherable lines, the person mm-hmm. shifts, the language shifts, the time frame shifts. But then, you know, you get to the second stanza and you have what are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. And we're again into this space of pure poetic brilliance, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I think for for me, what I will say is I I love the wasteland as a technical achievement, right? I can see how, and and I deeply believe that it is, I mean, I I think Pound is right, that it is really the the poetic expression of the movement, right? It is modernist poetry at its purest and most perfect. And for long stretches of the poem, I don't feel much at all, right? Yeah, I just feel confused. I'm like, you know... and and then there are there are stretches where I feel as deeply in the wasteland as I do throughout Ash Wednesday or throughout mm-hmm. Four Quartets. But I mean, one one way of maybe talking about the difference between the wasteland, in particular the Elliot of Four Quartets, but I think also the Elliot of, if not everything besides the wasteland, much of <laughs> yes. 
Fancy Wasteland is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest another essay that came out on the occasion of the hundredth anniversary of the Wasteland, which is Joanna Winant had an essay on modernist difficulty that came out in the Boston Review a few weeks ago. And in it, she's talking about different kinds of difficulty in modernist, not just poetry, because she's also talking about Ulysses, which was published in 1922, and Mm -hmm. Wittgenstein's Tractatus, which was published in 1922. And I think it's George Steiner that she is citing who talks about, he gives like a taxonomy of different kinds of difficulty. And I forget exactly what the four kinds are, but the two kinds that, that stick in my mind, he talks about formal difficulty and ontological difficulty, right? Mm -hmm. And The Wasteland to me seems a poem that is primarily interested in formal brilliance, right? Yeah. In, In formal innovation, in formal renovation, and it's not nearly, um, well, it's certainly not nearly as direct, and I would argue not as sophisticated in its thinking about ontology and philosophy and theology as much of his other poetry is, right? That it really is in many, in, for long stretches, a series, a heap of brilliant, crystalline, perfect images that are roughly held in coherence with one another, as opposed to a kind of ontological or theological exploration, right? Mm-hmm. And so to, to, to me, I, I can recognize the, the Wasteland's technical brilliance. I feel moved for long stretches. If you know, I had one Eliot poem, one Eliot sequence to spend the rest of my life with, there is no way it would be the Wasteland, right? Right. Because it it doesn't it I go to literature you know in I go to literature for many things but partly I go for you know hedonism right for pleasure and it's not hedonism <laughs> <laughs> but yes it's pleasure yes yeah yes the the wasteland gives a certain kind of pleasure or certain kinds of pleasure but it's not the kinds of pleasure i generally go to literature for and it's not as consistent in its pleasure giving as four quartets is for instance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean well i guess the problem for me and this may just be because i'm a philosopher i'm just always up in my head it's how i am but i get very frustrated if i if i feel like I don't understand something as a whole, Mm, you know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's not enough that I liked this movement or this part. Like I have to understand how the part relates to the whole, or I feel like, you know, I'm just, I, or I, or I just feel like I don't know how to truly appreciate this work of art. If I can't say something about it as a whole. Yeah. And And, and like that wholeness, that coherence, that order in the wasteland is, gestured towards by the fragments right but it's never actually made present in the poem right and that's Mm -hmm. i think a real difference between the wasteland and four quartets that i think the wasteland precisely in its brokenness in its fragmentation it's kind of like virtually pointing towards a a wholeness Mm -hmm. that would hold them together but it's not actually Mm -hmm. in in the music and in the argument making that wholeness felt right on the reader's pulse and four quartets is yeah, so I think I read so much haphazardly in, in preparation for this, so it's all kind of jumbled up in my mind. But at some point, I read 
a bit from Virginia Woolf's diary. I guess uh-huh. she was at a party. Yeah. When he read The Wasteland. Yeah. I don't know if it was in its final form yet, but he read like part of it at a party and she was there. And so she heard it, right? Yeah. She wasn't reading it. And I do think that The Wasteland in particular, I think all poetry is better heard um, than just yeah. read. Yeah. But I think for some poems, it's like more true. Yeah. I mean, in some, for, and, and, in lots of cases, like it's impossible for us. Like we don't, we don't hear Homer, yeah, because we can't, yeah. So we read it, and yeah. and knowing that it's imperfect or whatever. But the 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 wasteland in particular, I think, is just better heard. But anyway, she talks about she she basically says something like, "Yeah, I have no idea <laughs> what he was talking about, but it sounded great." Yeah, you know, and I just. And I think there's something to that. But I also think that Eliot is correct when he says that with with any literary work of art, the the enjoyment and the musicality of it, the, the, just yeah. the pleasure of it has to be bound to your understanding of it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not really being enjoyed as art in mm-hmm. some sense. Mm-hmm. And or it's not it's not being properly enjoyed, I guess yeah. is maybe what you want to say. Yeah. And that seems correct to me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. seems true. And but but then when I apply that criteria to the wasteland, I feel a little bit stuck. Yeah. Because I can appreciate the musicality of it. But then I read it and I'm like, what this is like literally nonsense. Like there mm-hmm. are there are points in it where to me I'm just like, I have no idea what, what's even happening here. Yeah. Like like the ending. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> I don't know what's, ha- what's happening in the ending. Yeah. So so maybe, would it be okay if I, I read out loud? Yes, please. It would be okay if you did anything at this point, because I'm just asking for help. Yeah. No, so I was going to read out loud, because um, I... I I began my my piece um, in the Baffler with that journal di- uh, entry from Wolf on listening to the the Wasteland. Oh, okay, so um, it was you. Yeah, so it was, yeah, so it's was, <laughs> it was, it was yeah. Um, but it's but it but it, I think it, it's it's a, a wonderful and astute and I think telling response in the moment to this poem. So it was from June nineteen twenty two. So this is, you know, the the year that the Wasteland was published. It, it is finished, and and he reads the poem to a group of friends, including Wolf, and and she says, "Elliot dined last Sunday and read his poem, meaning the Wasteland. He sang it and chanted it, rhythmed it. It has great beauty and force of phrase, symmetry and tensity. What connects it together, I'm not so sure." Then I'll skip a little bit. One was left, however, with some strong emotion. The Wasteland, it is called. And Mary Hutchinson, who has heard it more quietly, interprets it to be Tom's autobiography, a melancholy one, right? And so in a, in a certain way, right, I think that, that Wolf appreciated or, or first encountered the Wasteland in its, in its best and purest form, right, as a piece of music. Eliot has this notion that he calls the auditory imagination, which I think is a, is a great phrase for what he's 
what, for, to me at least, I think makes him such a great poet. What makes him such a great poet for me is not the elusiveness. It's not the sense that the poetry emerges out of this living and dynamic and deep tradition. That's part of it. But to me, what makes Eliot such a great poet in, in the wasteland and elsewhere is his auditory imagination. And Eliot describes the auditory imagination. He says it's the feeling for syllable and rhythm penetrating far below the conscious levels of thought and feeling, invigorating every word, right? And there is something working on you at the kind of unconscious level in reading The Wasteland and hearing The Wasteland. But I think oftentimes that you were saying that you think that Eliot is right, that the pleasure that poetry offers has to do with musicality, but that's always bound up with a movement towards understanding. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the the problem that I think readers of the wasteland oftentimes run into, and I certainly run into this myself as well when I'm when I'm reading it, when I'm writing on it, when I'm teaching it, is that the movement towards understanding in the wasteland oftentimes simply means the looking up of those illusions that I was talking about, right? Like seeing mm -hmm. the poem as a code that needs to be cracked. Mm -hmm. And partly, I mean, partly that's maybe that we're not reading the wasteland the way it it should be read, but partly that is Eliot wrote this poem as a kind of tissue of quotations, right? Mm -hmm. As a series of citations that can't but but provoke that kind of a response in the reader. To understand this poem, you almost have to think is to 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 have, you know, the the Norton anthology of literature and many other anthologies of of literature and, and philosophy and religion besides you. Yeah. Sorry. So this this kind of gets to one of the paradoxes of this poem for me, but also kind of like trying to compare and contrast Eliot as poet with Eliot as critic. Yeah. Because like in, in Tradition and the Individual Talent, isn't that the essay where he goes on about how you need to understand basically the entire literary canon yeah. in order to really appreciate and, and create good poetry? Yeah. That seems to be directly in tension with Ryan Ruby's main claim and dig it up again, which is that, you know, he's, it's, it's a misunderstanding of Eliot to say yeah. that he's an elitist snob yeah, because he, you know, liked ragtime and, and all this stuff. I mean, I think it's just true that Eliot ha sort of has this appreciation for high culture and low culture, but I just yeah. think it's not true. <laughs> that he thinks anybody could just pick up the wasteland and appreciate it. Yeah. I think I think he thinks I mean he says it has to be difficult. Yeah. And you you sort of like I mean it's just like very clear that you have to do the work. Yeah. And so that raises the question and that and that kind of also makes sense of his claim that the mere enjoyment, the musicality isn't enough. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. That whereas like the mere enjoyment is enough for the lowbrow stuff. It just is. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And or at least I would say that it is, but I could be wrong. I could be talked mm -hmm. out of this. But like, you know, 
you you have to you have to know you have to get all the illusions that I'm making. Yeah. And I so and I I I'm just completely fine with this kind of snobbery. I've no I've no problem with this. Yeah. So that's that's not the issue for me. I think the issue for me is that you spend a lot of time digging all this up yeah. and you can see like, wow, he's this is this is enormously clever. Yeah. But it doesn't add up to anything. Or if it does, I don't see it yet. And that's the sticking point for me. Is that like I you're kind of like, well, wait, why did I do all this work? Yeah. <laughs> again, like what what maybe one maybe one way of getting at that is to say again, something like if the wasteland as a great work of art moves you towards or or leads you to desire to understand it more fully, right? Oftentimes it seems like, to me at least, the fullest understanding of the wasteland would be understanding how all of the parts fit together, a kind of formal understanding of the poem, right? Here's what all of these illusions are doing and here's how they all fit together, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas one of the reasons I, I think, not I think, one of the reasons where that I love four quartets more is I think when I read four quartets, the kind of understanding that I'm drawn towards is absolutely a formal understanding, right? How do these different sections cohere? Mm -hmm. But it's also an understanding I'm drawn to try to understand, say, the point of the intersection of the timeless with time, right? I'm yeah. drawn to try to understand the, the deep things that that poem is saying about embodiment, right? Mm -hmm. In history in the incarnation, mm -hmm. in music. Mm -hmm. And for, for me at least, and this might be a, a failing of myself, I don't find th those kinds of issues as at play and as at stake in the wasteland as they are in four quartets. That mm -hmm. to, to me, it's, it seems like the, the perfect understanding of the wasteland would be a perfect understanding of its form. And the perfect understanding of four quartets would be an understanding of how its form embodies its thinking about sacramentality and time and eternity. Yeah. And I am just, yeah, it does. And I am just, I'm like hylomorphic all the way down in all yeah. aspects of life. And so I just think that form and matter have to be, <laughs> have to yeah. be essentially united. Like you separate yeah. them and I get really concerned. Yeah. They have they have to be it's got to be a unity. Yeah. But these are my <clears throat> this is more about me than than anything else. But I but I also wonder and then we can move on. I just also wonder like you look at Eliot's poetry and the wastelands does seem like an outlier. It's it's clearly Eliot, but it's also clearly an outlier. Yeah. And I just have to think that this is because it's really an Elliot Pound thing, mm. you know, of like, I like how much of Pound is in this. Mm. Because I think most people who first read The Wasteland, well, this was definitely the case for me, like don't understand that this was in some deep sense created by Pound in the sense that like Elliot had this thing and mm -hmm. then Pound like mm -hmm. cuts out like what half of it, more than half of it, rearranges yeah. it, change, I mean, like just massive massive changes which clearly yeah. Elliot signs off on but like yeah. 
it's a it's a it's a different thing and yeah. so much pound in it yeah no in in right so one of one of the the connections between the wasteland and Eliot's other poetry is Eliot from proof rock onward was interested in the dramatic monologue right in kind of one of the ways in which his aesthetic of impersonality played out in his poetry is he voiced other personas right he he tried on other personas in the wasteland, one could read the wasteland, right, as a series, a dizzyingly numerous series of dramatic monologues in which all of the, the ligatures between them had been cut out, right? Mm-hmm. And so those dramatic monologues, oftentimes it's like one voice gives way to another voice. Yeah. Or even midline, right? Yeah. And that condensation, right? He always loved trying on other voices, but that right. condensation of those other voices is quite distinct from Eliot's other poetry and almost certainly is a result, at least in part, of Pound's editing, for sure. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so that's one thing that's really dislocating, I guess, or discombobulating yeah. about reading it is you're like, wait, who's like, who's talking? <laughs> like, what's going yeah. on? Who's talking? Yeah. Like, whose memories are these? Like, what's, yeah. you know? Yeah. But it doesn't seem like the voices are in dialogue with one another yeah no it it, it, are they often they are right but often it seems like a cacophony right it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like a chorus it seems like a cacophony Mm -hmm. and again the the experience of reading the wasteland is oftentimes or it, it oftentimes seems to me the desire to occupy the perspective from which these voices could actually be in conversation with mm-hmm. one another, right? Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think what you're describing, right, is you and I think me and, and maybe all readers of The Wasteland have never perfectly been able to attain that perspective, right, in mm-hmm. which these voices will actually be in conversation with one another as opposed to in a cacophony with one another. Whereas I think in Four Quartets, mm-hmm the voices the voices are dancing with one another right they're not shouting at one another they're in a kind of well yeah a, a dancer chorus mhm yeah i mean i just think if the necessity of dislocation is to force language into its meaning that's what he yeah. says yeah if that's the standard that he's holding himself up to i guess the question is you know whether or not the whether whether the wasteland succeeds by yeah Eliot's own lights. Do you think yeah. that it does? So I think it, it's a it's a great quote that that you offer, and one maybe one way of thinking about it would be to say right. So what what is it? Dislocate into meaning, right? Yeah. So he says the poet must become more elusive, indirect, in order to force to dislocate if necessary language into its meaning. Yeah. And so I guess one one way of putting it would be something like the the meaning of the wasteland is the dislocation, right? So like it dis it, it d- does that make sense, right? That, it does. Like, it does. But but that, I, yeah. but that so it's successful on those terms, right? But that's not the meaning that I generally go to poetry for, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think four quartets to, offers more of the meaning I go to poetry for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's. The hundredth hundredth anniversary of the wasteland. We've we just decided to to slam the wasteland. <laughs> well, I'm not. Sl- I'm I'm mostly no, 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 slamming I, I, myself. I'm yeah. I'm just saying that 
you know, I'm just, I'm possibly saying that something is, is very wrong with me. I mean, it may just be that I don't like being dislocated, but I think, yeah, so maybe the problem is me. I've got many problems. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't, uh, <laughs> it would make sense, but I'm just being honest yeah. because I feel like, I feel like one of the things that happens with people generally, but maybe young people, especially with poetry is that they feel put off by the fact that like they don't get it or they don't you know and nobody's really helping them and i understand that and they don't want to sound dumb yeah you know everybody's so afraid of sounding stupid yeah but actually sounding stupid is the only way you learn anything i'm always trying to tell my students this i'm like you have to just sound dumb it's fine yeah just say what say whatever you think and we'll go from there yeah and I think, yeah, that feeling of not getting it can can just be extremely off-putting for people. Yeah. And it's clear that in this poem it's intentional. Like he yeah. like he's wanting you to feel off-put and dislocated. And so maybe it's just being able to sit with that. And you're and you're absolutely correct to point to the fact that there are moments in this poem that are so powerful and striking and beautiful and I completely agree with that my only problem but it is a significant problem for me is that I can't appreciate it as a whole yeah (laughs) whereas his other poems I feel like I can yeah I feel like I can read the whole poem and stay with the whole poem whereas with the wasteland I feel like yeah, I'm with it. Now I don't know what's happening and it seems slightly yeah. silly to me. Before we move on, let me just ask this question. So for our listeners yeah, like who want to go deeper into the wasteland, what do you recommend? I mean, is there a way of reading the poem or or understanding it that's maybe more unified than anything we've said so far? So the, you know, when I teach the wasteland, what I say is, you know, you were saying all good poetry or all poetry should be read out loud, right? I fully subscribe to that claim. And I also think that all the best way of reading poetry is, of course, to reread poetry, right? So the best way to read the wasteland, the way that I suggest my students read the wasteland is first listen to first listen to Elliot read it. Right. Just listen to Elliot, read it, then go back and read it yourself really quickly. Right. Don't slow down. Don't look at his notes. Don't look at other notes. And those kind of provisional readings will allow the poem to activate the auditory imagination that Elliot is talking about, the way in which language and music and syllable and rhythm works on us despite or beyond our consciousness and only then start looking up the citations, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the the best method for reading The Wasteland is repeatedly and in different ways, right? Sometimes just listening to the music, sometimes hunting down those sources. And then I think the late, great critic Dennis Donahue has a wonderful book called Words Alone, which is a collection of essays he wrote on Eliot. 
And there's an excellent essay on the early Elliot and the Wasteland in particular there that gives an account of the Wasteland that I think allows those lovers of the Elliot outside of the Wasteland to maybe see how the Wasteland is of a piece, at least of a certain kind of piece with the rest of Elliot's achievement. Mm-hmm. And so what's his basic line? like? So his, his basic line is that Elliot is, is always interested in using poetry to gesture towards that which is beyond poetry, right? Using language to gesture towards that which is beyond language. And that's partly what the fracturing and fragmentation is doing in the wasteland, right? That it's precisely because language is fragmenting that we are, we kind of lean towards, yearn for, think about the the larger poetic or metaphysical context in which those fragments could cohere and make sense, right? And that's of a piece with, you know, Four Quartets, where he's also interested in the way in which language and embodiment in time are sustained by and intersect with that which is beyond language and embodiment and time. It's just that the the thinking about the relationship between those different planes of reality, that's an expression that Eliot used when he was talking about Dostoevsky. He said that when you read Dostoevsky, you always get the sense that his his work is working on different planes of reality at the same time. That thinking about the relationship between language and that which is beyond language, the body and that which is beyond the body, time and eternity, that thinking is made explicit in Four Quartets. It's implicit, but it's still there in the wasteland. Well, if you think like, you know, theologians obviously worry a lot about how we can talk about God (laughs) because God seems to absolutely transcend human concepts, right? And and therefore human language. And there are various approaches to this, but, you know, Thomas's approach is that we can only speak of God, you know, analogously in, yeah. in his specific sense. Now, we can, we can readily understand why words fail, necessarily fail, when it comes to God talk. But what is that, what is that beyond words to which he's pointing us in this poem? Is it, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> is there yeah. an answer to that question? I mean, like, is there some, because, because this might really help me with the poem. Like, is there, like, what is he pointing us to? Because yeah. people have so many different ways of reading this poem. Like, oh, it's autobiography. I don't know. Maybe that's true to a certain extent, but that can't be why it's a great poem. Yeah. Like, what's it pointing us to that somehow words fail to capture? Yeah. So, I mean, what you're talking about, right, is the the difference between the analogical imagination and the dialectical imagination, right? The idea that language can get some purchase on that which is above language or the fa- or the idea that that language always and inevitably fails and we have to kind of emphasize the failure. And I mean, in the wasteland, I think the things that the language is gesturing towards, which can never be fully embodied in language, are something like the experience of being a wounded, suffering self in the world. I don't think consistently the thing that the words are gesturing towards is 
God in the wasteland, right? I think regularly that which language is brokenly, fracturedly gesturing towards in four quartets is God or eternity, right? Mm -hmm. Or the metaphysical which sustains the physical. I don't know that that's as consistent. I don't think that's as certainly as consistently the case in the wasteland. I think it's more a poem about the 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 kind of endless and uncapturable suffering of what it means to be a self in the world and and for and for Eliot again that that kind of brings us back to what we were talking about at, at the beginning right that this poem is kind of pressurized in many ways by the personal psychological pain that Eliot was living through at this moment a kind of pain that we can gesture towards with language but can never fully be captured by language Okay, that's really helpful. I mean, is one thing that the poem is speaking to is the kind of yearning for unity and coherence that is simply yeah. lacking this kind yeah. of, you know, I don't know, Augustinian restlessness that somehow, right? Because because this is, I mean, this is something I can understand. Yeah. That I can understand fully well. Yeah. Is is that sort of, it's sort of like, you know, is the nature of the suffering that you want there to be, I mean, this is the, this is the nature of Camus suffering, for example, you know, yeah. he wants things to make sense. Yeah. But it's just not ever going to make sense. Or he wants there to be unity. He wants there to be a story, but there's not a yeah. story. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, so maybe two different things we could say the the words, the language of the wasteland are gesturing towards. First of all would be what I was saying before, the the kind of deep woundedness, right, of existence for the self, for the soul. But also Right, I'm just the, asking so no, sorry. I'm I'm just asking the nature of the wound. <laughs> right. No, and what I was gonna say is and, yeah. and I think it the other thing that they're gesturing towards coherence of various kinds, right? Mm -hmm. Like the yeah. coherence of the poem as a whole, metaphysical coherence, historical coherence. Mm -hmm. And part of the the woundedness that Elliot is giving voice to is absolutely being locked in a horrible marriage, right? Mm -hmm. But part of the woundedness he's giving voice to is also seeming to exist not just in a marriage, but in a world that doesn't cohere. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that, okay. So that's, that's really helpful to me. I mean, I think that's really helpful because that would explain why the poem isn't going to cohere as a whole, right? Because yeah. it wouldn't, it wouldn't be true to reality if it did. Yeah. And then, yeah. and the notes again are kind of like foregrounding coherence, right? As mm -hmm. a problematic in the poem, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the, the notes are kind of like suggesting, but also pulling back that there might be this framework that would make sense of the poem and its various failed voicings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good, so that's super helpful. Thank you. But at any rate, that was really helpful. And it's probably a good transition to the four, the four quartets. Yeah. Because that to me does seem like a unity. And so that, you know, that again kind of raises the question whether or not Eliot is just a different person with a different perspective when he's writing, the, mm -hmm. you know, his later poems, his mature poems. Mm -hmm. Where like, he's like he sees a unity now, 
Yeah. That he didn't see before. And that it's not that the wound is gone, because if you're yeah. Christian, of course you believe we're totally wounded. Yeah. But that you see, uh, as it were, a remedy, right? Yeah. There is grace. There yeah. is hope. Yeah. Et cetera. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of distilling the 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 difference in the in the different feelings that the wasteland and four quartets provoke in in the reader. You're absolutely right that the woundedness does not go away in four quartets. And I think one of the, the kind of silly misreadings of Eliot as a religious poet is that he's this tortured, wounded, suffering young man who finds absolute and total and kind of boring comfort in religious belief, right? If you read Ash Wednesday or read Four Quartets, they are poems that are about the difficulty of belief, the difficulty of faith, the sustaining importance and beauty of those things, but also the, the real difficulty of them. And the woundedness now has a broader framework about a broader context, a broader narrative in which they can be understood, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what Eliot says in Four Quartets, he he talks about these moments in which, you know, the point of the intersection of the timeless with time, in which time embodiment seems to open up to that which is beyond time, to grace, to God, to beauty. But Burnt Norton ends, you know, Burnt Norton, this beautiful poem I love has, it so much. It's, it's, I mean, it's just a, a remarkable poem musically, imagistically. It has this beautiful moment that actually harkens back to a moment, I think, in, in many ways in the wasteland, in the hyacinth garden, in the wasteland, in the hyacinth garden, the speaker very briefly sees into the heart of light. There's this moment of kind of epiphanic revelatory illumination. Then in Burnt Norton, you get the empty pool being filled with light, right? This lovely moment in which time opens up to eternity, but the poem ends, ridiculous the waste time stretching before and after, right? Those moments of illumination are piercing and beautiful and sustaining, and they're also temporary in the poem, yeah. right? Yeah. But in Four Quartets, unlike in The Wasteland, there is faith that there is a narrative in which those moments of intersection are the true meaning, right? Mm -hmm. And there is faith that there is a context in which that woundedness can be given meaning, isn't just woundedness, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, I find myself, again, not just moved in for stretches of Four Quartets, but really moved from beginning to end. I mm -hmm. think Four Quartets yeah. is you know, an incredible poem in in its own right. He, when he wrote Burnt, uh, sorry, uh, Burnt Norton is an incredible poem in its own right. When he wrote Burnt Norton, he didn't yet have the idea of the four quartets. It was just a standalone poem. Mm -hmm. And just as moving, if not more moving, is the end of Little Gidding, right? When yeah. the fire and the rose are one. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, he ends by talking, you know, voicing, quoting Julian of Norwich, right? all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that is articulating in Julian and also in this poem, again, faith in a kind of coherence, right? Faith mm -hmm. in a kind of meaningfulness 
that can't be seen from within time, right? Or if it can be seen from within time, it can only be glimpsed from within time. But there's a faith that that kind of meaningfulness, that pattern, that story is there, right? Mm -hmm. The fire and the rose will be one, right? Mm -hmm. And that belief, the, the wasteland talks about or dramatizes a yearning for coherence that never quite never actually quite coheres right it Mm -hmm. never actually quite enters into the poem Mm -hmm. in four quartets has that same desire but also the faith that such coherence is to come Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i yeah i think that's i think that seems right and i think that it's i think that the contrast between them is so striking yeah and i think you because well I mean, obviously, Four Quartets is is about <laughs> what it means to be a creature, right? What it what it means to be a wayfarer in time, yeah. and how yeah. to make sense of oneself in time in light of the incarnation, right? Yeah. Because there's like before and after, <laughs> right? Yeah. That and but it's also just it's such a beautiful poem i mean it's four poems right but it i you know read them together and it really is so moving and full of beautiful images that don't seem as fragmented right yeah in 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 part because you know it's a poem in in four parts and each poem is in five parts and each of those five parts can be re- resonates with the other part in the other four poems right so like each of the five the fifth part in each of the four quartets has to do with language right has to do mm-hmm. with language gesturing towards that which is beyond language mm-hmm. and so there's a way that the poem i think quite intentionally and clearly formally coheres right in mm-hmm. four quartets in a way that the wasteland doesn't or, or is kind of uninterested in cohering. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. It is not that striving to cohere. The interesting thing is as well is thinking about why quartets, right? Why he has yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of language of music. And, and as I mentioned, Eliot is, is, you know, he talks about the auditory imagination as being maybe the most important skill for a poet to have. He's someone who's deeply interested in the music of language. He's someone who liked different kinds of music, right? He loved mm-hmm. classical music, but again, to go back to the Ryan Ruby essay, he he loved popular music. He loved mm-hmm. jazz. He loved ragtime. But I think that the the longer, expansive, iterative form of four quartets, right, allows Eliot to introduce motifs, right, to use the the language of of music that are then returned to and amplified and resonate in different ways across the poem. And they do it in a, a far more kind of orderly and ordered fashion than the wasteland, right? The, the mm-hmm. four quartets reads, he sounds like a beautiful piece of music. Mm-hmm. The wasteland whatever it sounds like does not sound like a beautiful, coherent piece of, it it sounds beautiful in snatches, right? Yeah. There's something about the deep harmony of the ideas, the claims made in four quartets that absolutely is, is kind of embodied and coded in the form as well. 
Can we just go back really briefly to the yeah. contrast that you drew earlier between the dialectical and the analogical? Yeah. Because you wrote an essay about this that I read yeah. called The Twice Broken World, in which you talk about Bart's influence on Elliot, which kind of goes back to your opening <laughs> vignette, yeah, yeah, how yeah. you how you got into all this in the first place. Yeah, I am. I'm selfishly interested in in this question. Yeah, just from a theological perspective, and obviously I'm with the Thomas on this, but I just wondered if you could talk about where you think this distinction is meaningful to understanding the four quartets. Yeah. Yeah. So just to take a, take a step back. So the, I'm getting that language or those, those terms, the analogical and dialectical imagination from David Tracy, right. Who sketches, right. The difference I mentioned this before the analogical imagination, imagining that or positing. Okay. David Tracy, right. Talking about two different styles of theological thinking and writing, right. One, the analogical imagination, which is associated with Catholicism, Thomism, which asserts that there is a consistent and deep connection between creator and creation. It's a kind of sacramental imagination. And then the dialectical imagination, which is far more often associated with Protestant theology, which asserts that there is an absolute, to use kind of Bart's language, an absolute gap between creator and creation, right? Can I, can I just though, can I stop you right there? Because yeah. one thing that kind of bothers me about this way of setting it up yeah. Is that for Thomas, there is, of course, an absolute break between creator yes. and creation because God, God's essence is his existence. Yeah. And that's, um, that's why God's not just another thing. That's why yeah. God is, in some ontologically deep sense, absolutely transcendent and other, yeah. right? For, for it's the mark of a creature of any kind. It's the mark of being created, Mm -hmm. that your essence is distinct from your existence. Yeah. So that somehow, that note of absolute transcendence, which is absolutely there in Thomas, and, and I think essential to understanding his account of analogy, right? Yeah. The reasons why our words will always fail in some sense, yeah. always break apart. That, that note of absolute transcendence, you know, is is essential to his count of a creation and yeah. and our absolute dependence on God, right? Yeah. Who not only gives us our existence, but sustains us in our existence. So there was something about the setup that kind of like irritated me a little bit. It was like this grain of sand <laughs> just mm -hmm. because there's some sense in which the distinction can't be between transcendence and eminence you know because yeah. like there's some there's somehow both in yeah. in the thomas worldview yeah yeah but so it, i'm i'm with the thomas as well yeah okay and, good yeah and all right thinking think, people are yeah, yeah. um <laughs> and, and you know what one of the things that you know tracy's doing you know in in that essay i'm obviously reducing a very complicated argument that tracy is making and tracy is interested in sketching out these two admittedly reductive ways of thinking about theology, right? Does one emphasize more the deep connection or does one emphasize more the abyssal gap separating them? But he says all good theology 
and I'm certain Tracy would include Aquinas in this, right, is both analogical and dialectical, right? Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, but now, even though I just said that is a reductive Mm -hmm. account of theology, I'm going to use that reductive account to to kind of think about it. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my, the way I understand, or one of the ways one could understand the difference between the wasteland and four quartets is to say that the wasteland is a poem, a deeply dialectical poem, right? That it, insofar as it has a sense for that which exceeds language, right? God, right? Transcendence. The stuff of the poem, the fragments of the poem seems absolutely at an absolute and irreconcilable distance from that which is above, right? From the transcendent, mm-hmm. right? So di- the dialectical imagination is about rupture, brokenness, distance, gaps, chasms. That's the wasteland kind of part and parcel, right? And then in Four Quartets, Eliot is interested in, and explicitly says, right, these are, you know, hints and guesses and the, the gift half understood is incarnation, right? He's interested in how those moments, you know, the moment in the rose garden, the, those moments of where, the, 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 uh, where time seems to open up to eternity aren't just fun, lovely, beautiful moments, right? They tell us something really important about the essential nature of existence, which is there is a deep relationship, a sustaining relationship between the imminent and the transcendent, right? So by that reading, Four Quartets, in its explicit articulation is an analogical poem. It's asserting that there is a deep connection between creator and creation. Now, Mm -hmm. what I was interested in doing, what I am interested in when I'm reading Four Quartets is, the way I put it is, I think Four Quartets wants to be an analogical poem, and in many ways is an analogical poem, but Eliot is continually drawn back towards the 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 feeling of absolute distance and difference from that which is above and sustains us right that mm-hmm. so much of the poem dwells in the ridiculous waste time spreading before and after those moments of where we feel the analogy of being right where mm-hmm. we can sense the analogy of being that four quartets in other words is a great theological poem because it is both interested in the deep connection between the imminent and the transcendent. And it's also aware, to go back to what we were saying before, of the the continual woundedness of feeling that the transcendent is not just distant, but kind of irrecoverably distant. Right, except for the incarnation, right? I mean, because that's where, I mean, Christology is where all of this gets impossibly complicated, right? Because there's a God-man. Yeah, yeah. And so so the, the poem, the poem, maybe would be, probably should be described as dialectical um, were it not for the fact that all those moments are hints and guesses of the incarnation, which this poem asserts is the event, right? The event that that makes, um, well, that makes sense of the, the, of one's uh, temporal existence. Do you think that it's wrong or misleading to say that the four quartets is is about the incarnation. Uh, you know, is that too reductive? 
No, you know, it's funny because that piece that, that we mentioned before that I wrote for The Baffler, um, I was I was writing on this this new biography by Robert Crawford, and he's a very good biographer, and and he's oftentimes a very good critic. He's a he's a very good poet himself, and in talking about four quartets, he does not use the word incarnation a single time. And I mean that's silly. I just I I, I think that it is, I I don't know what to say. It is a poem about the incarnation, yeah, right? Yeah, it it yeah. explicitly <laughs> says that it's a poem about the incarnation from beginning to end. It is a yeah. poem about the yeah. incarnation. Yeah. Um, and and it's not just a poem about the incarnation, as in it's not you know a it's not religious apologetics or theology masquerading as poetry, mm-hmm. but it is about the incarnation and it mm-hmm. and it it says as much and its form suggests as much. Mm-hmm. It kind of seems to me that the the first three poems and the it kind of seems sorry, let me start over with that sentence. It kind of seems to me that the that the fourth poem as it were swallows up the first three in a weird mm-hmm. way and is mm-hmm. c- kind of like about all of them or somehow mm-hmm. like the fourth poem is the unifying one, this little getting. Yeah. So maybe, maybe cause we can't talk about all four. So maybe we could just yeah. focus on that fourth one as a way of cheating. Yeah. <laughs> so you can bring the other ones in. I mean, what, why is it called? Why, why does it have the title that it, that it has? And what, what do you think is the main significance of the fourth and final poem? If we could just like leave you know, whatever your thoughts are on the fourth, yeah, the fourth of the four quartets. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Because Burnt Norton, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but Burnt Norton is a, a place that has a very specific meaning in Eliot's biography. Yeah. I mentioned before the dry, uh, the dry cell of ages has a very important place in, in Eliot's biography. East Coker is where his family was. The Eliot's were from, uh, little getting does not have a specific biographical resonance, right? Um, it's an important space in the religious in, in, um, because of Herbert literary history of Anglicanism of, of English religion, but it doesn't have a specific biographical resonance for Eliot. And I think that's one way in which Little Gidding seems to kind of offer the 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 most distanced and synthesizing perspective, right? That it kind of takes a step back in many ways from Eliot's own biography, from Eliot's own kind of geography. And I mean, Little Little Gidding, I, I I just think it it. I mean, what what to say about Little Gidding? I, I think it's the most beautiful thing Eliot ever wrote. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that any poet has has written in in English certainly in the in the 20th century and you know it it has this incredible section where Eliot encounters or a speaker who seems to resemble Eliot encounters a compound ghost this another one of those kind of third figures walking beside you as we got in the wasteland and this compound ghost is an amalgamation of many of the poets that Eliot had read and in love throughout his life. Yeats is certainly present here. And he has a, a conversation with the the ghost who basically he's he's a ghost, so he's he's old, right? And even by ghostly standards, he's 
of elderly, right? And he and he says, right, I, I I don't really have wisdom to offer you, right? All I have to offer you is the lesson really of the entire four quartets and especially of Little Gidding, which is the lesson of humility. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, the compound ghost is interesting because Eliot's poetry has been filled with prematurely old figures from the beginning, right? Proof rock. Eliot writes proof rock when he's in college, right? Mm-hmm. But he's like a prematurely old college student who's like inhabiting this persona of a prematurely old man. Gerontian is a poem about kind of decadence and feeling old before one's time, feeling enervated. And the compound ghost is the final and I think most powerful figure of, or instantiation of this kind of figure. And one of the ways in which Little Gidding ties up not just the first three quartets, but all of Eliot's poetry is precisely the only lesson he has to offer him is the lesson of humility. Humility as a spiritual discipline and humility as a poetic discipline. And, you know, that's, it's, it's a lovely moment and it leads to the last movement in the last of the four quartets where Eliot, again, just as in the wasteland is quoting, right? He's, he's voicing, he's channeling another figure here. It's Julian of Norwich. And, one of the ways in which Little Getting and the final moving movement of Little Getting kind of sums up and synthesizes the three movements that came before it is precisely by moving to a kind of providential perspective, right? All manner of thing shall be well, right? And it's, you know, an attempt to imagine or believe in that which transcends time, which holds Beatitude. Yes. I mean, I always thought it was about beatitude. Yeah. And that makes sense of why it's not any particular place because it's it's home for all of yeah. us. Yeah. It's where we belong. Yeah. It's when cuz that final we shall not cease from exploration mm-hmm. and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know yeah. the place for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's beatitude, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 beyond place and beyond time, but it also contains within it all place and all time, right? Yeah. And in, in that way, it's the perfect, you know, culmination for this, I would say, close to perfect poem. Yeah, because in beatitude, you don't need hope anymore. Mm. And you don't even know faith. It's only love. Yeah. Complete simplicity, <laughs> I think, yeah. is the way he puts it. But I mean, yeah. that would be correct. Yeah. So I think it's a, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's an incredibly beautiful Christian poem. Maybe, maybe the best Christian poem of the 20th century. I don't know what would compete with it. Do you? Yeah. No. And, and, you know, that, that final stanza where again, he's explicitly voicing Julian of Norwich, but is also very clearly channeling Dante, right? The, the, the fire and the rose are one, the celestial rose. It's the most Dante-esque poem mm-hmm. of the yeah. 20th century. Yeah. And, you know, Eliot had a lifelong loving relationship with Dante, you know, all the way back in, in the wasteland, right? He's, he's looking at the it's London a good, movie. it's a good lover to have. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it, it certainly is. 
and 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 that last stanza, you know, is as close as anyone has gotten to Dante. I think. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I really yeah. just, you know, it's kind of this has been really helpful to me. I think my impression is that there are people who love the wasteland, and there are people who love the four quartets, and they yeah. don't tend to be the same people. I would really like to appreciate them both. (laughs) And I do feel like now I have a better appreciation of the wasteland. So thank you for that. We have to end this because it's just gotten insanely out of control in the most beautiful way that conversations sometimes get out of control. But I just want to leave the last thought for you. I mean, final thoughts about Elliot for our listeners. Yeah, I guess I think you're right to say that Elliot lovers tend to either love the wasteland or love four quartets. And I don't know. I, I think that the, the poems resemble one another more than they're oftentimes given credit for that four quartets is in its own way, just as difficult as the wasteland. It's just a different kind of difficulty. Again, to go back to that um, George Steiner, it's it's a kind of ontological difficulty in addition to a formal difficulty, whereas in the wasteland, I think it's primarily a formal difficulty. Um, but one of the, the things that makes Eliot the great poet that he is, is that he can offer different kinds of difficulties and different kinds of beauties to different kinds of readers. And, you know, as long as poems will be read, will be reading and wrestling with and feeling we're inadequate to, but still in love with Eliot's poetry. All right, that's perfect. Thank you so much for coming on, Tony. This was really great. Great. Thanks so much for having me. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks, as always, goes to Will Dethridge, Bea Quasi, and Joe Coleman for their work in editing and producing this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash Patrons enjoy many benefits, like tote bags and coffee mugs with exclusive artwork, and free digital subscriptions to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. For our next episode, I will be joined by Randy Boyagoda to talk about his new novel, Dante's Indiana. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. <laughs>